You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network. I just want to let you know that our sponsor, Harry Tarantula, is looking for people who do comics in Canada for signings, events, and Q&As. So if you do a comic, they want to hear from you. They're located at 6979 Young Street, and you can give them a call at 647-430-1263. We're looking for people like our past guests, Ramon Perez, Marcus Toe, Kelman Andrasovsky, Ricky Lima, Megan Carter, Hope Nicholson. If you do a comic, they want you. Email them at us at harryt.com or call them again at 647-430-1263 and ask for Leon or Jeremy and tell them Aaron sent you. Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one on one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hey, fanboys and fangirls, welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You found us on Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com or on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast needs met. Don't forget to subscribe and uh, like us on social media at SpeechBubblePod. This is a bit of a special episode and a bit of a departure for us. Uh, our motto is Toronto's best comic book podcast and ordinarily I'm interviewing Toronto's comic book luminaries. But uh, as longtime listeners will know, I grew up in Vancouver. So I'm actually on location at Fan Expo Vancouver at the Pan Pacific Hotel. And sitting beside me is Ed Brisson. You'd know him as the writer on Old Man Logan, Iron Fist, The Violent for Image, which is one of my personal favorite comics, uh, Comeback, The Sheltered, Secret Wars, Battle Worlds, and for DC, Batman and Robin Eternal. So uh, yeah, he's worked for all three of the major comic book companies, and uh, I'm honored to have a fellow Vancouverite uh, to talk to. So hi, Ed, how are you? Good, actually it's funny because I think you and I kind of crisscrossed because I'm originally from Toronto. Okay. And then I live out here, but... Uh, cool. But yeah, I'm doing great. Uh, the show's been really good, so I got no complaints. I don't live in Vancouver anymore. Um, so I'm just, it's good to be sort of back here visiting as well. Yeah, I remember, I talked to you a little bit at Fan Expo once, and you said that you moved out to Kelowna because of, like, real estate prices and yeah. stuff here. Yeah, real estate here is absurd. Just the cost of living here got absurd, and I felt like I was suffocating a little bit. And the cool thing about comics is my job goes where I go, so we just went to went down to Kelowna where the, the cost of living is a bit cheaper. I used to live there as a teenager, so it was a bit of a return. Nice, nice. So growing up, how did you uh, get into comics? How did comics come into your life? You know, I'm not 100%. I can't remember when I first started reading comics. I know that like I, my mom used to always go to the used bookstores on the weekend. Uh, she would read like two books a week. And I would um, go through the used comic bin, like the, the 10 and 20 cent bins pick up comics. I do remember being in the hospital for a bit when I was younger, 
um, and having a whole stack of comics, and that was the only thing I could do when I was there was read the comics. And I think that's right. what really got me hooked. Um, but I've been reading comics for as long as I can remember. That's awesome. In terms of like growing up in Toronto, I know that Toronto has like a really well-established comic scene now with like a lot of different shops that cater to a lot of different uh, interests, like the independent shops like the Beguiling and the Silver Snail is sort of the mainstream shop. What was the scene and community like in Toronto, like growing up? Like what was the city like? When uh, you well, I was actually in Oshawa. So okay. I was born in Toronto, but I grew up in Oshawa. Okay. You know, unfortunately. <laughs> But uh, it was there was no scene there. I, you know, me and my friends would kind of draw comics with each other. Right. But there was no real scene. There was a few shops that I used to go to, and they, you know, I would just buy comics and and, and read them. But there was no. I don't think I ever met a comic book, an actual comic book creator, the entire time I lived there. Like we moved away from there when I was fourteen. So, yeah, I, I was too young, I think, to be part of any scene at, right. at that point. Right. Right. What kind of comics did you just collect, and what? spoke to you about the medium of comics why did you get into that um you know oddly i started out collecting uh like one of the first things i remember being really obsessed with was uh peter porker the spectacular spider ham um <laughs> I, I was always a spider-man kid a batman kid a punisher kid um daredevil uh captain canuck i remember getting into captain canuck just because you know it was cool to have some canadian, canadian content yeah. um and then later on, I don't know. It's just I always I just like the, the that marriage of art and story because I was a kid who liked to draw and I was a kid who liked to write, and um, just that 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 bringing those two things together in one medium, I think just really spoke to me. And then as I got older, you know, my taste refined. I found that there was just so much you could do with the medium as well. You know, I think that one of the first books that had massive impact on me when I was when I was younger was Craven's Last Hunt. But uh, I don't want to spoil it for anyone listening, but it's got one of the most depressing endings of any book you will ever read. And it, uh, it blew my mind as a kid, like just reading that. And uh, I think that was the, the series that I read that made me think that maybe I wanted to do comics as a career. Right, right. And like, that's really interesting because some of your comics, especially like the image stuff, has sort of that grittiness and that, you know, of something like a Craven's Last Hunt and like the darkness is definitely there for sure. So maybe that carried over. Oh, I'm 100% it did. That's, yeah. a, that's the kind of stuff that attracts me to stories. I, I usually like, like as much as I like stories that are, are, are that are fun and, and not necessarily dark, uh, like, a, like you know, The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, I think is a lot of fun, that book. Right. Um, and Power Pack, when I was a kid, was a, a favorite. But uh, there's something about like really, like emotionally raw stories that, that, that always, draws me in and is those are usually the type of stories I want to tell as well like you know the violence is you know it, it's a, a book that I wrote that's deeply personal to me but you know it's also one of the <laughs> bleakest books you're gonna ever gonna read it's not a happy book there's not you know there's not a way out for anyone um, and yeah I feel like I think about that often how about how you can almost trace that back directly to Craven's last time and the impact that had on me. Nice, amazing. So how did you go from a person who was like a fan of comics to somebody who wanted to work in comics? How did you make that decision and then how did you like break into the industry? Um, I have like the longest breaking in story of anybody I know I think. It took me a long, long time. I started I started out, I wanted to be a comic book artist. I didn't want to be a comic book writer. 
I was living in Kelowna, and again, the, this was like kind of pre-internet. This was like early '90s, and I didn't know anyone who wrote comics. There was no internet. There was no way to get comic book scripts or meet people. And I remember meeting a couple guys who wanted to write comic books, and um, it was both meetings were really weird in that they're weirdly um, egotistical, even though none of us had done anything. <laughs> and and their their mindset was very much that uh, that I was like a uh, I would just be like almost like a janitor, you know, for, for them, like just some dude who's working for them to create their vision and it was very much theirs and they would own everything and weirdly the stories were garbage that they wanted to do and so I had this mindset when you know, I think I was like 17, 18, 19, 17 or 18 at the time if I'm going to draw garbage stories I may as well just write my own garbage stories and so that's what I started doing around 1994, 93, 94 I just started writing and self and drawing and self-publishing comics so my very first one was a book uh, called Hardcore, um, which I did with a few other locals. And we published it and it went through distributors and it was in comic shops everywhere and it was terrible, it was awful. And it cost me thousands of dollars to do it. Uh, it left me broke for years afterwards. Um, and I think, you know, I, my, my dreams at that point, I, in my, what I thought was going to happen was I was going to put out this book, it was going to be a huge hit, and we were all going to be working in comics. None of that happened. It was a terrible book. It, nobody cared about it. Did not further my career. And I was kind of a little bit bummed out about that, but, but right around that same summer that it came out, I went to uh, Lollapalooza at the back in 94, and there was a booth set up there selling zines and mini comics. And I'd never seen like a zine or a mini comic before. Uh, there wasn't really much of a scene for that in, in Kelowna at the time. So I bought a whole bunch of these these photocopied comics. And it's it's weird that it's such a simple concept that you can just draw and then photocopy and staple and put out comics on your own without having to go through a printer and have this big uh, production and, and lose thousands of dollars. And that sort of changed my direction for a long time. I started writing and drawing comics that I would just photocopy and I'd sell through record local record shops and comic shops. I'd sell them out on my backpack and just however. And uh, I did for years, I, I, I did mini comics. I've probably done dozens, dozens of mini comics, mostly like autobiographical stuff. And again, I was drawing all this and writing it. Um, and then later on when the internet sort of became a thing, I did a web comics, I did web comics for a little while. And I did that from 1994 to 2010. Wow. Uh, I never submitted to publishers until right around like 2006, I think. I had this, I, I'd stopped reading mainstream comics for a while, like uh, mid to late 90s, I'd stopped reading uh, mainstream comics, mostly due to that like, you know, there was that like third wave of, of image books that were just trash and they would only last one issue. And I can even remember what, it was like an issue of Troll that came out through Image that made me so mad that I went to the comic shop and canceled my pull list. Wow. I just wasn't buying comics. And I, and I was a kid who had two jobs and was buying $120 a month back in the early 90s, uh, mid 90s. And I just stopped reading comics, um, mainstream comics. And then uh, through that, I discovered stuff like 8-Ball and, and Peep Show and, and uh, uh, Yummy Fur and Chester Brown's work yeah, and, awesome. and all the, that sort of stuff and I kind of became more obsessed with that for, for a good chunk of time and then that lasted I don't know about seven, eight years where I didn't read any mainstream books 
Uh, I, I would say, yeah, we'll say five or six years. Didn't okay. read any mainstream books. Uh, well, mostly reading John Corley, Fanographics, um, Top Shelf, whoever, you know, that sort of stuff. And uh, still publishing my own mini comics. And then around, yeah, 2006, I pitched something with an artist to a publisher, to Image. Uh, it was an idea that I had that I thought would make for good mainstream comic. I'd been, I'd been back, I came back around 2002 to mainstream comics, reading them. That was because my art style is very cartoony. I, I, I worked with an artist because I realized, like, the book, I, the story I wanted to tell wouldn't work with my art style. And it didn't get picked up by Image. Uh, we pitched it in 2006, it didn't get picked up, but I got like a very long, a very kind email from Eric Larson. Uh, when he was running Image, had had a rep that he could like, if he turned down books, he would sometimes just rip them apart. Uh, and he sent me a very kind email just saying like, you know, that he could have got, he's like this, you know, the book, I could go either way. He's like, I've been thinking about it for a day or two, about whether or not I want to publish this. He's like, it, it's almost there, it's right there. And he says, I feel like the next thing you do will be the thing. He's like, the, the writing works, you know, the art's great, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that gave me some faith that I could do this, um, even though it didn't get picked up. And then I had more luck with my second pitch. And I, I, so I'd done 2006, 2008, I did pitches. I was trying, I had to save up money to, in order to do them. And um, right around 2010, I realized that like, I, you know, I'm liking this thing of collaborating with other artists and I hate drawing. Even though I went to fine, I went to fine arts in university because I wanted to train to become a better artist. I actually just hate the process of drawing. And I, I always wanted to be a comic book artist. Uh, and in 2010, I had to be honest that like, I liked the idea of being a comic book artist, but not any of the work that went with it. Um, and my heart was more invested in the writing, which was, it was weirdly a hard thing for me to accept because uh, as I said earlier, I only started writing because I needed something to draw. And, and it's just weird to me that that's what became the thing I was doing um, and so in 2010 I stopped drawing almost completely I, I barely picked up a pencil since then and um, just focused on the writing and then once I just started focusing on the writing you know with from 2010 uh, late 2010 early 2011 I met Michael Walsh uh, online and um, he and I just started pitching some stuff and then we had come back picked up by Image in 2012 and then since then I've been working you know professionally in comics you know but it was you know it was like an 18 year journey of me you know and it wasn't necessarily always the smartest I wasn't always making the smartest decisions is that I wasn't pitching stuff from from uh, 94 to 2006 yeah that's 2006 was the first time I ever tried pitching I and I and it, where it started to feel real that I could have a job in comics. Before that, it never felt like I could. It just felt like I was doing these comics because I love making comics, I'm just gonna put them out. Uh, and it never felt like I could actually have a job in the industry. Right. Uh, and then, you know, after after uh, sort of 12 years of tooling around with it, I thought, you know, maybe I'll make a, a play on it, you know, play to try and get into comics. And you know, it took a while to do it, but. And for me, like as a comic fan, I remember growing up in Vancouver and there wasn't much of a scene here. So when you're in like Vancouver, Kelowna or wherever, on the West Coast, it seemed like there wasn't much opportunity to get noticed here as much, you um, know? Yeah, I think like in Vancouver, 
there's always been comic book creators living here. Right. And so when I moved, I moved to Vancouver from Kelowna in 1997. And actually one of the reasons I moved here, I was trying to decide between Vancouver and Victoria, was that um, I'd heard there were these cartoonist meetups once a month. There was a comic book creators who would meet up for dinner. Yeah. And uh, so I moved here and I tried to find out everything I could about it. It never materialized. It turned out they'd stopped doing them just before I moved here. But from living in Vancouver, I did start meeting other comic book creators. That's good. And I think that's actually why I um, started pitching. I think it was, I met um, Steve Rolston, who I'm friends with, but uh, when I first met him, he was a guy who was working in the industry. Yeah. And I think just that meeting somebody who works in the industry that you see around, like you, you, you hang out with and have a beer with, made it seem like, oh, like, this is something that, that real people actually do. They're not this, these ethereal people out there who are making these comics. It's something that like real people do. And that's, it sounds like a weird thing, but it's it's what made it seem possible to me that a guy I'd met and, and talked to a bunch is doing this. Yeah. Um, like, I remember that there was like a really big, like, independency like I remember Reed Fleming like right, Milkman yeah. and stuff like that that guy was from Vancouver and I remember that like Pia Guerra from like Why the Last Man lives in Vancouver yes. and like Ian Boothby and stuff and uh, that's like, when I moved here it was like Ian Boothby and and like uh, James Lloyd who was from Vernon um, and, and moved here yeah and he was doing like Bongo they were doing Bongo comics together yeah, well, Simpsons I, I remember James and stuff from when I lived in Kelowna from the 90s he used to uh, he used to put out these mini comics called Dr. Greeley, uh, and they, they were amazing. There's that whole, like, Colin Upton and all those guys, they were around in, in the 90s, uh, and, like, I know all of them now quite yeah. well, and uh, so it was great. Like, there was a really good scene in Vancouver, and there still is a pretty good scene. Uh, it seems like a lot of people right now uh, have been moving away. Uh, Calgary seems to be benefiting most from it, because uh, most people seem to be heading over to Calgary, uh, just because it's a more reasonable cost of living. Uh, yeah. And like the fan, the convention scene is starting to, because of things like Fan Expo Vancouver is really starting to grow here. Like I remember where like the only place you could go as a fan that was like a convention was like the Heritage Hall. The first Tuesday of every month, you'd go to like this church. Right. And it was sort of like a swap meet style well, he, convention kind of thing. They have them like three or four times a year. Yeah. I actually do their website for them now. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the Leonard shows, and I would go to those like on Sundays I think and um, yeah they're usually on Sunday now I, like I don't know when they were like if they were Tuesdays back in the day yeah, but like, I know recently it was usually like a weekend yeah usually so, like a weekend like a one weekend a month kind of thing yeah but there are th those are actually weirdly really good for me as well like doing those shows they were never busy and it was more like it, it's people who were diving through bins for back issues but um, you know I met a few pros at that at those shows who um, gave me like really good feedback when I was starting out and, and really helped sort of bolster my confidence as well. I uh, met Greg Recca at one of the shows. Um, I was doing my series Murder Book, uh, so sort of 2011 probably, and asked him, you know, we were, we were sitting next to each other so I was talking to him a little bit and asked him, you know, I gave him a couple copies of Murder Book and asked, you know, if he had a chance to read them ever. They could give you some feedback because I was trying to. I wanted to become a better writer, so I need feedback. Right. And uh, I remember he looked at me and he was like, "Do you want like 
honest feedback or do you want me to like just like fluff your ego and I'm like no like I want honest feedback he's like okay cool because like some people can't handle it and um, and the thing I like about Greg Rucka is he's straight with you and uh, one of the most nerve-wracking things in my career up until that point was uh, Greg Rucka took the issues of, of Murderbook and he sat at a table basically across from me and read them and then came back and gave me feedback it was all great feedback and it was you know he had some some notes and stuff like that and and, and but also like he had seemed to like them as well um, that like early on for me was was a big boost but again somebody else in the industry who you know who seemed to think I was on the right path as well so from image like the violent is one of my favorite comics because uh, I relate to the whole down honey side thing right. and growing up and whatever so and you said it's like deeply personal what aspects of it are most personal to I you? think uh, I was writing that book at a time like I, I've been trying to like leave Vancouver for years uh, but my wife is originally from here and didn't want to leave and why did you want to leave just the cost of living with yeah. housing it, it's been skyrocketing for like over a decade right and so the writing's been on the wall for a long time and uh, I wanted to get out while it was still possible to go somewhere else and, and you know I'd like eventually I'd like to own a house you know, like, yeah. and that's why you know, I wanted to leave and my like I said my wife is from here so she didn't have no interest um, but I was writing that book at the point where we finally realized we had to leave uh, we had been in 2011 uh, renovicted from a house which uh, for those like renovation is like a Vancouver term basically means uh, they used to say demoviction or, or, or renoviction and they've kind of just pulled them into renoviction but basically we were living in a house that got torn down so they could build condos and so we got booted from there and then we were living in a house on Oak Street which is like one of my favorite areas of town and we the same thing was happening our, our area got rezoned for condos there was literally condo developers and real estate agents knocking on our door three four times a week trying to get in touch with my landlord so they could buy the house from him to tear it down and kick us out um, so that was coming and we knew it was coming so uh, we knew we had to leave um, but like just like beyond just how that affects my life the housing crisis here is something that affects everyone because what you're doing is you're the, the, the buying a home is unattainable so you have a rental market that's overcrowded uh, the people who would normally buy houses now have to rent houses which is jacking up the rents all over, all over the place so there's no affordable housing for low income for anyone who's low income it's like almost impossible right uh, to get by and especially if you have like you know uh, families or you know or single parents with, with children uh, it's a real, it's a real issue. You know, like I grew up, my parents split when I was fairly young, so I grew up, me and my brother and sister were with my mom. So I'm like, like I've seen how that that affects uh, families, and people. I've lived through how that affects, and uh, it was I was getting like weird, like I don't want to say like PTSD, but like these feelings of like how it was for us growing up, and how that like how that's happening, and how hard that is for everyone sort of around us. Um, and then it, you know, it, it talks about like drug addiction and how like even when you're clean and when you're straight, you're not, you know. And uh, right. I had I had friends who moved out here from Ontario who fell into drug addiction and you know their lives were just torn apart uh, and are still to 
this day. They're, you know, yeah. They've never sort of recovered from it. And so, like, I've, this is all these things that is like about this city. I think, and uh, you know, because like Vancouver is always like very pleasant in, in film. You know, when you when you hear about it, it's like a great place to visit. But there's all this other shit happening that you know is never really covered. And uh, so I was just trying to make this story that, like, for me, I was it was very, very cathartic because I was working through things on my own. Uh, with living in the city, also with like being a father, I have a, 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 a kid, and part of the thing with us is we were like barely scraping by because the cost of living here was so high, and it made me feel like I am not able to provide for my kid in the way that I want to be able to provide for her. Um, so there was just a lot of anxiety inside that, that There's a was lot of, coming out in the script. I'm not really a man kind of yeah, well, sort of thing. Or, yeah, just yeah. not like I'm just not the provider in the way that I wanted to be. Yeah. Like me and my wife, uh, we had, like my wife had a, a decent job here before I quit to do comics. I had a decent job and it was still like you're working only to pay rent and there's so little left over at the end of the right. month uh, that it just, yeah. it was really, uh, it was really stressing me out. And we grew up, like when I grew up you know, like I said, it was a single mother uh, household. We didn't have, there wasn't a whole lot of money growing up either. And I always wanted to get better. Like I wanted more than for my kid than what I had growing up. Right. And it just wasn't possible here. So yeah, that was a lot of that anxiety was spilling over into the book and it became very much about that. Right, right, totally. So from Image, how did you get hooked up with Marvel and like doing like Iron Fist? It's probably happening at the same time too, right? But no, um, I'd done a couple things for Marvel over the years. Uh, back in 2013, I'd done a two-issue fill-in on Secret Avengers. And then as soon as I'd finished that, uh, my editor at Marvel left. So I didn't have any contacts there anymore. Uh, and then in 2015, I got brought in to do something. And again, right after it was a one-issue thing, my editor left. And so I was kind of just floating, and I, I'd done a couple things, but couldn't seem to make any traction. And um, yeah, they just like um, somebody at Marvel had picked up and read Murder Book, which is a series I started in 2010, which was just like short crime stories I was putting up online for free and self-publishing. Uh, and somebody had brought a collection of it into the Marvel offices, and someone had read it. And they just got touched me about Bullseye. They wanted me to write Bullseye. Um, and it, it kind of came at the right time. I had just wrapped uh, writing the violence. And I was in a weird place because um, we had just moved. So we just left Vancouver and it, it had eaten up our entire savings. And also, weirdly, all my comic work dried up. And I had, uh, I had no comic work going on. And uh, I thought I was actually looking at part-time jobs when I got the offer to do it, uh, to do Bullseye. So it came at the perfect time where I thought that maybe that, that was it. My run was already over with, with comics. Right. And, uh, and it sort of pulled me back in. And, and since then, it's been pretty much nonstop uh, working on Silver Marvel. Yeah, and you're, you're doing stuff that's sort of like Bullseye is sort of on that sort of noir stuff that you right. that you kind of like, and then also like Iron Fist is like a martial arts thing. Old Man Logan has its own little edge to it, and that kind of thing. So they obviously kind of dig your style. Like yeah, dig the kind of thing that the kinds of things that you actually do. They, so. They've been really good about like when I have conversations with them and stuff, and they talk about putting me on different books. It's they they definitely take into consideration like 
what sort of books I would excel at, where they can play to my strengths. Yeah. And uh, like I've got books coming out in 2018. I think that that will really show that as well. That like you know they're really they're not just throwing me on a book so they have warm body on the book. They're, it's everything is trying to to play to my strengths and and, and trying to you know allowing right. me to work within my wheelhouse. Right. Let's talk about like Iron Fist and and Old Man Logan. I know with Old Man Logan you had to follow like Jeff Lemire, right? Right. That that's kind of a lot of a lot of pressure, right? Yeah, yeah, a lot. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was nerve wracking. I think like Jeff Lemire, I think is one of the uh, like he's a great writer. He's one of the best newer writers. He, I guess he's been around for about a decade now, but like his stuff is amazing. And so, you know, he'd done a 24-issue run on, on Old Man Logan, and to sort of come in and follow that run was nerve-wracking. And, um, yeah, I, like, the night before that book came out, my, my first issue, I didn't even sleep. I was worried that people, you know, were going to drop the title because Lemire, Lemire was leaving. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely nerve-wracking. I, I think that, like... You know, like I, I really like his run, but also when I came in, I didn't want to replicate like sort of what he was doing. So I tried to you know, put my own spin a little bit on the title uh, while still like I think like you know like while still following in what he was doing, like and keeping it going. Right. What speaks to you about Wolverine at that age? Um, I like well, like just Wolverine in general. Yeah, because he was you know growing yeah. up, he was the coolest comic book character. I was obsessed with Wolverine. Uh, and that he's Canadian, you know, it was awesome. Uh, but for him at that age, I don't know, I like, the thing I like about it is it feels weirdly like a, a pure Wolverine. Uh, he's like, he's, you know, because Wolverine has always had this weird sort of like Clint Eastwood feel, you know, to him. Like he's got that sort of cool tough guy, but it's not put on. It's just, just how, you know, just the way he is. I think just like seeing him as an older guy where he's like, he's older he's grumpier he's more like cantankerous but he's also like he's slower and and things hurt more <laughs> like yeah. so i like the idea that he goes into battle and and, and he gets hurt and it, it, and you know the one thing we've been sort of really trying to do is that like he doesn't he doesn't bounce back like even wolverine does he's he's freaking hurt and it, and it takes a while for him to recover and that vulnerability is like there's like an emotional vulnerability oh, absolutely. that comes with that right and he's got like you know he's got now this um, the one thing that I think is interesting um, is that so in the wasteland his family's dead and he's been carrying that around with him uh, but also in the wasteland the one thing is that you know uh, he killed the X-Men I don't think this is a spoiler this is the old yeah. old man Logan yeah. um he killed the entire X-Men, which is this, like, extra guilt that he's carrying around. But now being in the 616, or the Prime Universe, or whatever you want to call it now, um, he's got the X-Men back, which has got to, it, it feels good for him. But, like, his family's still gone. Although, you know, in the Lemire run, he visits his wife who's a child in our timeline, because obviously we're... He's from 50 years in the future. Yeah. And so she's still alive. So it's this weird thing to me that I think is interesting is that he, she's alive and she's safe, but he can't have his family back, right? Right. But he can know that they're safe. And it's, got, it's, it's just a weird, you know, it, it's, I think it's just a weird, emotionally a weird thing to have to deal with. Um, you know, you're, you're happy that they're safe, but you're, you're also 
you know, he's carrying this thing around where, like, they, you know, his, his wife and kids got killed. Uh, he could never be with his wife, even though now she's safe. Like, yeah. It's like you have everything. She's eight years old right now, so yeah. it's kind of gross. It's like you have everything you want, but there's a huge cost. There is also, but like again, like with his wife, like he can never. Like obviously, they're never. That's not happening because it's. She's eight right now, and it's yeah. weird. But that also means because that he and, and and his wife will never be together, his kids will never be born. So like, he, his wife is okay, you know. You know, she's a child now. So because this all happens before. Um, but like his kids will just never happen. They're never going to, to come around. Right. And and I think even now, now we know. Like I, I think everyone knows that you know Wolverine was in the latest issue of, um, or was in that first issue of Legacy. Right. So Wolverine's back, but we don't know much about why about anything. So the Marvel universe as a whole, I don't think know that he's back. But he's coming back, which I think is going to cause a lot of really interesting things with Old Man Logan because this the X Men where he's with the X Men. It's really, even though they are, you know, they were his family growing up, because it's a different timeline, they're also not exactly the same. It's not the same X-Men, but it's just a different dimension version of X-Men. So it's almost like they're, like, proxies or stand-ins. And now with Wolverine being back, it's kind of like, you know, Old Man Logan is, like, the stepfather almost, and the father's come back into the family and and remarried back into it, and he's, like... Yeah. He's had this kind of what weird like standing family for a long time, and now how does he fit in there when Wolverine proper is back? So I'm like, looking. I'm looking forward to that face off because I feel like it's going to be like a big rivalry, like two guys, like what, like you know, because it's like you're you left and and now you're back, and you just expect everything to be the same kind of thing. Right. Like, that's going to be a really big source of tension and, and confrontation. I think. Well, we're talking about how we're dealing with that right now. Like, so it's something we, we've been considering for when Wolverine's actually going to be back and how that's going to look. Yeah. There's some really interesting stuff coming up over the next couple of years with that book, but... Um, cool. Yeah, I, can't, I guess I can't say Yeah, you can't about say, that, but, you can't but I think anything. it just puts him in a really interesting spot where, like, he almost, he, he weirdly is losing everything that he thought he got back if, if Wolverine comes back, right? Right. Uh, the last thing I want to talk to you about is, uh, is Iron Fist, because... Right. The mainstream, like mainstream people, know Iron Fist from that piss poor Netflix series that was that was launched. Stuff, but it's one of the things that you're most known for. It's like your run, your your run on Iron Fist. So, I want to get a sense of like what strikes you about the character. Are you into martial arts? Like, what did you love about that book and and, and that kind of thing? Um, I grew up. So my dad uh, taught Shanru karate for you know all throughout my childhood and then I think he only stopped like about a decade ago uh, and my brother also taught it uh, when he was a teenager um, so I was kind of, I grew up around karate you know like and my dad you know, when we go visit my dad during the summers my brother and I would just beat the shit out of each other with uh, his katana and his bows and stuff like that he'd have all this like weaponry that we would bruise the hell out of ourselves uh, attacking one another with um, so we, uh, so I've been around karate like as long as I, I, I think. Your dad I was remember. like a black belt. He was or? a black belt. He was uh, a third degree black belt. Was a third dan. I can't even remember. Uh, but yeah, he taught. He taught it for for years. Um, and both both him and my brother. And uh, so we were around it. Uh, I watched a lot of Shaw Brothers kung fu flicks growing up, and even you know, to this day I still do. I'm a huge, a huge, huge film nerd. I watch a lot of older 
like cults and B movies and stuff and, and like a ton of kung fu movies. So yeah, you and Kagan McLeod. I think Kagan McLeod's the other guy that I know that I have, that's really into Shaw Brothers stuff. And nice. Things like that. Um, but yeah, so when I, when I got offered the book, I was just like, I wanted it to feel like when we, we wanted the, the book to really feel like a '70s Shaw Brothers kung fu movie. Uh, and and uh, you know, and Iron Fist is just a character that I love anyway. Um, so I wanted to make sure that we did the character, you know, yeah. did the character good. And um, yeah, that was just like that was just basically the intention. Was to set out and do make it seem like a um, like a, a kung fu film on paper, you know. And right, and there's like mysticism. There's like a bit oh, yeah. of mysticism there, and like a magic there and stuff. So. Yeah, and that's and that's all that's baked in with Iron Fist. That's always there. So we're just you know staying true to who the character is, uh, trying to tell this big story that. Uh, both has like larger implications for Danny's life, uh, and harkens back to like uh, Iron Fist past. So there's a lot of threads in there that that touch on stories as far back as like Iron Fist's first appearance, right? There's yeah. there's things that that uh, we sort of pay off that have happened in old Iron Fist comics. With that, but like, it's that weird balance where like we want to we want to touch on a lot of that stuff, but also make sure it feels fresh. Right. Uh, it doesn't feel, um, it feels like, not just fresh, but like that new readers can just hop on and understand what's going on. That's awesome, man. Okay, so where can people find you? What are your sort of plans for the future? Where can people find you on social media? Um, you can just find me on Twitter at Ed Brisson. Um, or you can visit my website, edbrisson.com. Uh, that's about it. Uh, as for plans for the future, I, you know, I've got. Iron Fists, Old Man Logan, and Cable all going on right now, and then um, I've got uh, got a couple books coming up early next year through Marvel as well. That will be uh, pretty exciting. Uh, one is a bucket list book for me that I'm really excited to write. I do have a creator-owned book that will be coming out, I believe, in March. Uh, it's going to be announced fairly soon, which I'm kind of excited about. It's a book that I've been working on since I think I first conceptualized the book around 2010, 2011, and then it was signed with a publisher, and we've been working on it for about four years now. It's been a long, long uh, haul getting this thing done, and that should finally be out in March. And that's more like sort of genre, uh, kung fu style stuff. So that's awesome, so man. People like you know, people who are into Iron Fist will hopefully also dig that. And now that you're in Kelowna. Uh is your anxiety, are you a little more relaxed now? Oh, man, I like, feel like now that I'm in Kelowna, <laughs> like we got there and I feel like I can breathe for the first time in, right. in like a decade. Yeah. It's been really great. I like I lived there as a teenager and when I left, I swore I was never moving back. Um, but uh, moving back has been one, probably one of the best decisions we ever made. It's, uh, it's a cool city, like I like it a lot. It, when I used to live there in the 90s, it was very conservative, uh, very, uh, it, was a, it was a retirement community, so it was a lot of, um, seniors and it sort of catered to that now it seems much more progressive there's a ton of brew pubs which is great for me uh, yeah it's a lot of, it's been a lot of fun that's awesome and uh the violence sort of got interrupted right you wanted to do like a three uh, story thing i actually want to do five volumes okay and is um, that still happening yeah i'm going to start writing the next volume in january uh i've got like an actual start date i've got the first the second volume uh mapped out uh the 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 trade paperback so the sales on the single issues of the violent were not great which is why it didn't continue 
but the trade paperback sales exceeded our expectation like threefold. So clearly there's a demand for it and maybe the demand is only in paperback or in trade paperback, we're not sure. So starting in January, I'm going to start writing and just have the scripts done. Uh, Adam obviously is also doing uh, work at Marvel right now. So our plan is just to kind of like fit it in between jobs, like when he, when if he has downtime between books or whatever, right? Which is rare, but you know, when he has the opportunity, he's gonna hop on and try and get some pages. And we're giving ourselves at least like 12 to 18 months per trade to get them done. But I have, I want to do five volumes. Uh, each thing will be self-contained, but uh, each thing is also um, there will be connective tissue with characters between each story. Nice. So, like the second volume is. Funny enough, is actually set in Kelowna, uh, which was the plan even before we decided to move to Kelowna. Um, and it follows the uh, Jesse, the police officer from, from the first volume, but as a 13-year-old, is set back in 1986, um, which, like, is not like 86 was sort of like what some people believe was like the germ, the the, the what may have started this whole housing crisis in Vancouver, the seeds of it lay in like 1986 with Expo 86 in Vancouver when, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, we were on like a just world stage. So it's, it deals with a lot of that sort of stuff. Even though it's set in Kelowna, um, Vancouver will still be, right. uh, still be there. It'll still be uh, talked about. Are you still gonna include the back matter? Cause part of it was like you were, yeah. Exposing people to other Vancouver hard-boiled uh, writers. Yes, I, I already we have like three stories that we'd already commissioned before it got interrupted. So um, there's another story by Sam Lee coming up. There's one by um, a friend of mine, Adam, who lives in, in Penticton, who is author of a book called All Day Breakfast. So that's our plan if we do single issues. But our right now we're not 100% sure how it's going to come out. Right. So it might be something where we do it digital first and you can get the digital single issues and then the trade paperback when the trade paperback's available or you know if there's enough demand maybe we will do single issues again uh print issues but uh we want to we're trying to be smart and also cautious uh, smart and cautious um, because as much as possible i would like to do a full five volumes of this series um, with the fifth issue, or the fifth volume, would be about Caitlin, the daughter from the first, as a uh, 12 or 13 year old, right. and how the things that happened in the first trade uh, between her parents, how that has a long term effect on her life, right. and then we get so we get to pick back up with her, you know, when she's sort of, you know, a young adult basically, and, and faced with some of the hardships um, that her parents weren't able to overcome. That's awesome, and how it's visited on the next generation. Yeah, kind of thing. yeah absolutely. Cool, cool. All right, man. Well, thank you so no, much. No problem. Thanks and uh, we'll see you guys next time on Speech Bubble. Don't forget to uh, like us on Facebook at Speech Bubble Pod. Go to Never Sleeps Network to check out some of our other shows, NeverSleepsNetwork.com, and uh, check out other episodes of Speech Bubble. Thanks a lot. See you next time. This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com.
This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula at 6979 Young Street. They sell comics and games to bright and imaginative people like you. So go there for your comics fix and go there for their games nights that happen all week. Check harryt.com for the schedule and tell them Aaron sent you.